Welcome to another iGrow season at APC. We're so glad you've tuned in. Our church is blessed with excellent teachers of the Word of God, and our hope is that you find today's teaching enlightening, motivational, and encouraging. To learn more about our church, visit theapc.org or find us on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. So sit back, relax, and enjoy today's lesson. It's hard when you look at an Old Testament book or just about any book in the Bible to look at it on its own and have it stand on its own. It's just hard without context. So last week you were given some context as to what was going on in the nation of Israel prior to the book of Nehemiah. And just a, a quick recap, you've got your timeline there, unless you didn't grab when you walked in. Lost here, let me help you out. Anybody else in here nervous? Just me. <laughs> Just me. All right. So, studying at Abraham, in the Exodus, uh, Exodus, you get the law given here. Then you have the kings. So, in between the kings and the Exodus, there's there are the judges, Samson, uh, all of the Ehud. He was left-handed. Um, Deborah, she was a woman. There were, there were a bunch of judges in here. They said, we want a king. So they, they received a king. Uh, after a couple kings, then the nation was divided, and, and they had two kings. And Judah, so there's three states in Israel. Judah's the bottom state. Then you had Samaria and Galilee. Uh, the northern kingdom was Israel. The bottom kingdom was Judah. Uh, the northern kingdom was captured by the Assyrians. The southern kingdom continued until about 605, B.C. when Babylonians came in. So that's what uh, they talked about last week. We're going to get into this a little bit. Uh, Avery mentioned that there was a covenant, an Old Testament covenant. Old Testament covenant. It's covered in Deuteronomy 28, 29, and 30 that said, If you will obey my commandments, you're going to be blessed, 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 blessed. But if you don't, you're going to be cursed, 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 cursed. And you're going to find yourself the subjects of another nation. And that's where we find ourselves. After many years of, of deciding not to follow God, we end up with a fall of the nation of Israel, and they're under Babylon. And that's where uh, Jonathan ended last week. In between Second Chronicles and Nehemiah, there's another book, and it's the book of Ezra. We cannot go to Nehemiah. I know we're supposed to study Nehemiah. And if you're OCD, you're going to be uh, uh, upset with us. But we have to sprint through Ezra. Now let me say this before we begin. There was also Daniel, too. Well, yeah. But if you're looking in the Bible chronologically, there's, like, there's one book in the end. That's where I was going. Good point. We had a discussion tonight. I was, I was going to stand up here and kind of lecture teach. But we were just talking, and it was so much fun. I learned a lot just talking to Avery. And I, I, I don't know what it would be like to just shut the computer and talk. I'm not willing to quite do that yet. But I did want these guys up here with the, uh, they, they've studied this just as much as I have, if not more, with the uh, freedom to interject and likewise you with questions, thoughts, interject, Brad Ross, but... Glad to have your great mind here tonight. <laughs> Interject at any point with your questions, your thoughts, your context 
to make this a better class. I've got notes, and we're going to get out of here at 8 o'clock, whether we get to the end of my notes or not. We may not get halfway through my notes. My notes. I don't know. I don't care. As long as we have a good time and learn something, that's what we're all about, right? Yes. All right. So let's learn. The Old Testament timeline. Uh, here's a, a different, I don't know which one I gave you. This one you, this one you have, okay. So you had 605 was when Nebuchadnezzar first started conquering the nation of Israel. Uh, he didn't wipe it out, but he, he, was, he was starting his conquest of the Middle East at that point. And he took some captives at that point. He took Ezekiel and Daniel in 605 B.C. in his first wave of conquest. But there were still Habakkuk, Jeremiah, and Zephaniah that were still in the nation of Judah. They were still there. Uh, there was a remnant of people that were not captured. That They were still there. They were still in Jerusalem. And at some point, Nebuchadnezzar put siege to the city of Jerusalem. For two years, he surrounded the city of Jerusalem. Two years. Until they ran out of food after two years. And the army departed. Nebuchadnezzar came in with his army and wiped it out. Destroyed the temple and destroyed the walls. So the city of Jerusalem, this once proud city, now has no walls and has no temple. When Nebuchadnezzar first went to the nation of Judah, he took some things from the temple. He came and visited again. He took some things from the temple. This time, this is his third visit, he wipes it out and takes everything of value from the temple and takes it back to Babylon and puts it in the temple of his God. This is significant. So everything that was in the temple has now been wiped out and taken back to uh, Babylon. Now we run into the book of Ezra. And, oh, is that, oh, is that Ezra right there? That's Ezra. Ooh, how did that get in there? Huh. Seventy. That was my new grandson. Seventy years. Seventy years. Seventy years. You made a great point last week. I'd never even heard this before. You've heard of the Sabbath day, right? Yeah. On the Sabbath day you rest. I had never heard of a land Sabbath. Did anybody know? Did you know there was a land Sabbath? Where the land was given a rest year? Yeah. Every seventh year? They were told that to, to harvest for six years, and on the seventh year you give your land a rest. Well, the people of Israel had stopped doing that. And the Bible says at the end of Chronicles that God allowed them to be in captivity for 70 years to fulfill the land Sabbath. So for 70 years, the land got its break that it had missed for 490 years prior to that. Blew my mind. I had no idea. I just thought they were in captivity 70 years. Just because? Just because. <laughs> but, but it says right there in the Bible, I don't know how many times I've read it, it just went... Anybody ever had that happen? You're like, when did, when did that get in there? <laughs> I've read this a hundred times and never saw that before. And wow, now it's speaking to me. Thank you for bringing that up because I, I was blown away by that. And then it says it right there. God provided the land a Sabbath or a healing period. Then we get into the book of Ezra. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, is overthrown by the nation of um, Persia. And King Cyrus takes over that part of the world. The world was all about world domination at that point. 
like a big game of Risk. It's really what it was. <laughs> Honestly, it was get as much land as you can. And so Persia takes over the Babylonian Empire, and their king Cyrus, Avery and I were talking about this, it's kind of, kind of crazy that God moved on the king of Persia. And the king of Persia said, I want you guys, you, you people who were captive, to go back to your nation and rebuild the temple. The people didn't ask for it. I don't, it doesn't say that anyway. I don't know if there was some talk going on, but Cyrus said, after God moved on him, take whoever wants to go back to the nation of Judah out of captivity and rebuild your walls. So in Ezra chapter 2, I'm going to make a sprint through Ezra. 42,360 people chose to return to Judah from captivity. Along with those 42,360 people, there were about 8,000 servants. Amongst that number, was there were 128 singers from the family of Asaph, which is significant. Um, anybody ever read the Bagats in the Bible and go... <laughs> so boring this is a begot that's kind of interesting 128 singers from the family of Asaph why is Asaph important? Asaph wrote Psalm 50 Psalm 70 I wrote it down somewhere I think I took a screenshot of it he wrote 73 and 8 through 83 50, 73 through 83 so he wrote 12 Psalms the forefather of this group and they must have been quite a family of singers we talked about generational curses earlier when we were sitting here. I think there's generational blessings, too. Oh, yeah. uh, I don't know what I passed down to my kids. My son likes softball. <laughs> we're Cardinal fans. I hope I passed down more than that. But, but Asaph's family was a very talented family. Uh, many generations later, he still has this talented family that, that's significant enough that, that it's called out in the Bible. And along with that, and I'm going to keep talking until you guys interrupt me. So you interrupt me whenever. 5,400 vessels from the original temple were sent back. I did not know this. I thought when King of Babylon came in, Nebuchadnezzar came in, he wiped out everything, took it. I didn't know that they had been stored in the temple of the king. And then when Cyrus sent the people back, he sent back 5,400 vessels from the original temple with them. When you go back to build, take these back with you. I don't know the spiritual significance of that. I just thought it is a cool thing. I just thought they were gone, wiped out, melted down, turned into coins, Buddhas. I don't know. But they weren't. They were preserved and sent back when the new temple was built. Ezra, that's Ezra chapter 2, Ezra chapter 3. This is Zerubbabel was responsible for uh, the building of the temple. Ezra chapter 3, the people were assembled together with a unified purpose, the Bible says. And before they began to work on this temple, they put together the altar on the site of the old temple. So they built this altar the, on the site of the original temple. And in the spring... Uh, of the second year, the temple work begins. Ezra 3 7 says, Then the people hired masons and carpenters and bought cedar logs from the people of Tyre and Sidon, paying them with food, wine, and olive oil, a barter system. The logs were brought down from Lebanon and floated along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea to Joppa, for King Cyrus had given permission for this. 
So they were rebuilding this temple under the permission of the new king of Persia. And Ezra, I love this stuff, by the way. And I apologize if you get bored. I love this stuff. Uh, I've never really studied Nehemiah very much. I'm not talking about it yet. Or Ezra, for that matter. But when I started to dive into this, and we never talking earlier, it, it's great. God opens up understanding and knowledge that, that makes the rest of the Old Testament kind of make sense. I, I hate that I have not opened this up before. Study the Bible, man. Study the Bible. Study the Bible. Context is huge. I'm going to stop. You guys have anything to say? Uh, when you get to the building of the temple, the second temple, no. Okay. All right. I'll jump in. You have anything? Uh, not yet. Yeah. All right, here we go. Ezra, Ezra, we're still in Ezra. Chapter 4. Finally, there's some opposition. People, Not everybody was happy about this. There were some surrounding areas... And you'll see this as we go through Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, these areas were kind of cordoned off. Everybody had their own area. That's why you need walls. That's why they needed the walls. Everybody had, had their area, and, and an area adjacent to Jerusalem and Judah. There were some people that said, what are you doing? You can't build your walls. They said, King Cyrus said we could. Well, King Cyrus is now gone, apparently. I don't know what happened to him, but he's been replaced by a new king. And so the opposition sent a note to the new king and said, Hey, there are people down here, and they're rebuilding the temple, and you need to check your records because these people are troublemakers. The people of Judah and Jerusalem have always been troublemakers. They look back at the records, and sure enough, when Nebuchadnezzar didn't destroy him the first time, they caused a lot of trouble until he came in and wiped him out. So they went back and looked, the, the new king looked back through the records and said, yep, you are correct. These people are trouble. He said, stop the building. It's in uh, Nehemiah, uh, no, not Nehemiah, Ezra chapter 4, verse 24 says, so the work on the temple of God in Jerusalem had stopped and it remained at a standstill until the second year of the reign of King Darius of Persia. So I think you kind of have to understand the dynamic of all of that area it was all under the auspices of the, that king of Persia, and then there were governors that were set up, and that really carried on through the rest of the Old Testament and into the New Testament when the, Persia was followed by Alexander the Great and Greek, the Greece or, or Greek uh, Empire. Empire. Thank you. And then the Roman Empire followed the Greek Empire, which. They just kind of set up, here, here we are, this is our kingdom. You are all part of our kingdom now. And so Judah, Jerusalem was part of that uh, Persian empire, all under what the king said, under the king's authority. So they stopped their building of the temple. But when that king died, they began to build again. In Ezra chapter 5, they started building again. And another neighboring governor came in and said, hey, what are you doing? Who told you you could do this? They said, well, we had permission from King Cyrus a long time ago that told us we could do this. That king sent a, a message to the new king, Darius. So Darius gets this message that says, hey, these people are building their temple again. And they said that King Cyrus said they could do it. So King Darius goes and looks through his scrolls. 
and looks through the history, and he discovers that that is true. And he sent this message back to that governor. Now, therefore, Tetany, governor of the province west of the Euphrates River, and Shether Bozenai, and your colleagues and other officials west of the Euphrates River, stay away from there. Do not disturb the construction of the temple of God. Let it be rebuilt on its original site, and do not hinder the governor of Judah and the elders of the Jews in their work. Moreover, I hereby decree that you are to help these elders of the Jews as they rebuild this temple of God. You must pay the full construction costs without delay from my taxes collected in the province west of the Euphrates River so that the work will not be interrupted. Give the priests in Jerusalem whatever they need in the way of young bulls, rams, and male lambs for the burnt offerings presented to the God of heaven. And without fail, provide them with as much wheat, salt, wine, and olive oil as they need each day. So this guy uh, didn't get the result he had anticipated. As a matter of fact, he was paying pretty heavy, a pretty heavy price for his actions. Uh, and I'll just stop with, I, Darius, have issued this decree that it be obeyed with all diligence. So, the temple is now completed. It actually took two and a half actual years of building to rebuild the temple. But it was a time span of 20 because of the interruption in between. So you have the first six books of Ezra about the rebuilding of the temple. Cool? If I might interject Yes, here. please. Uh, in regards to the second temple, uh, now, in Ezra, it talks about the people offering sacrifices uh, before the temple was built, and with the tabernacle that God planned out in Exodus for the children of Israel, and the first temple that was built, uh, the, the temple was built, and the tabernacle was built before... Uh, sacrifices were offered in the, the dwelling place for God. But it, it was uh, built first, and then God came down in his glory, uh, filled the place, and uh, fire came down from heaven, and, or whatever, and consumed the sacrifice, and that's what they had for their, they had fire, you know, the fire from God to sustain their sacrifices. But with the second temple, we don't have, you know, that fire coming from God. And I'm kind of wondering if it's because they didn't construct it 100% properly. If, if they just would have waited to do the sacrifices after the temple was built, you know, we got have provided fire for, for them for the sacrifices. If they had done it as a tabernacle in the first temple. So... Okay, it's interesting. Well, there was also missing the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant, too. And uh, later on, we, uh, we read that uh, the old men, at the dedication, the old men cried and the young men uh, rejoiced. Right. And I was wondering if uh, that was because the older men remembered the former glory and all they got is like a facade. That's what it appears. Yeah. When I read it, that's, that was my impression. Yeah. Uh, the Bible says that the young men were rejoicing because we had the temple, but the older men wept. And, it, and it's explicit when it says that the old men, the ones that had seen the former temple, the first temple, so the older ones are the ones that had seen the first
first temple, because young young people, they never saw the first temple, but they just saw, you know, this, oh, yeah, you know, and the older people are like, <laughs> falling and weeping, like, what is this? Yeah, uh, to further that, I'll, uh, in context of that, this is just my personal interpretation, is that uh, God, Yahweh, Jehovah, is starting to kick out the, the crutches of, uh, of, of the law, you know, preparing the way of uh, the true Messiah. So that, that's just sort of like what I believe. It doesn't necessarily be true. That's why I like talking about it. You learn things and have some different perspectives. I never even thought about that. I'm kind of on a different, uh, a different path here. Something that stood out to me reading Ezra, uh, there was actually a slide that you had up there. It's when they were, uh, like you talked about bartering, they were giving the materials over. Would you mind flipping back to that slide if possible? But one thing that I love doing when I um, read the Bible is a lot of people look at the Old Testament like, how can I glean from the Old Testament? The law is kind of done away with. But Jesus even said that uh, the law testifies of me. Search the scriptures. They are the scriptures that testify of me. And so one thing that I've kind of tried to adopt into my reading is looking for shades of Jesus and the New Testament in the Old Testament. So, one thing that kind of jumped out with me is the people hired masons and carpenters and bought cedar logs from the people of Tyre and Sidon, paying them with food, wine, and olive oil. The two things here that stand out for me is that in order to get the materials to rebuild the temple, they, pay, they used wine and olive oil to pay for it. Looking in the New Testament, wine is actually sometimes a symbol of blood. Jesus said... Um, uh, during the communion last supper, we, there was a class on that last week, if you guys were in that one, but it was, uh, Jesus said, this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many. Olive oil is very symbolic of anointing or the Holy Ghost. So when we look at wine and the Holy Ghost, we get shades of baptism in Jesus' name and the infilling of the Holy Ghost, and that is what they used to pay the price to build the temple of God and grow the house of God and grow the kingdom of God again. So I don't know if there's like, I don't know if you could always look at symbols like that in every instance, but it kind of stands out to me that's one shade of the New Testament that we see just by looking at the Old Testament and how God is developing his kingdom back then versus how he's also developing his kingdom now in the New Testament. So read the Old Testament. <laughs> it, is, it is more than just history. So they, they rejoiced and had their, they celebrated the first Passover in the new temple, and as Brother David mentioned, there was weeping and uh, excitement at the same time. In between, Ezra's like divided, first six chapters. Uh, I think I missed something here. Oh, no, that's later. I went too far. All right, so Ezra's divided. The first six chapters are about the building of the temple. Then there's a 60-year gap between chapter 6 and chapter 7, and if you read the book of Esther, that takes place during that gap. So Esther takes place during the captivity of Persia, where Esther, let me know the story of Esther, I'm not going to get into it, but it's a really cool story, the book of Esther, she uh, marries King Xerxes, who follows Darius. So it, it, it's just out of place in the lineage of the, the way it's placed in the Bible, probably because you couldn't put Esther in the middle of Ezra. So, 
if you were to, that's where you would place it, right here. We're not going to go into the book of Esther because we haven't even got to Nehemiah. So, let's get moving. Sixty years later, after the temple's built, it's about 458 B.C., Artaxerxes is now the king. He's the son of Xerxes, and I don't know if he's the son of Esther or not. I don't know. Ezra the priest is now sent to Judah with 2,000 men and a whole bunch of stuff. Here's what was sent by Artaxerxes. I weighed the treasure as I gave it to them and found the totals to be as follows. 24 tons of silver. That's a lot of silver. 7,500 pounds of silver articles. 7,500 pounds of gold. 20 gold bowls equal in value to 1,000 gold coins. Two fine articles of polished bronze as precious as gold. So he sent a lot of riches with Ezra in order to provide for the temple that had been constructed many years earlier. When they get to the temple, they offer a sacrifice with the previous exiles that had come back, the 50,000 or so. Ezra assesses the spiritual condition of the people. Ezra is a priest, and he, he, he's very knowledgeable in the law, the Bible says. And uh, he sees that the people that are left had begun to intermarry with the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites, and to take on some of their customs. And he is deeply troubled, for the men of Israel have married women from these people and have taken them as wives for their sons, so the holy race has become polluted by these mixed marriages. Worse yet, the leaders and officials have led the way in this outrage. When I heard this, I tore my coat and my shirt, pulled hair from my head and beard. I mean, you've been upset. I mean, you've been... Anybody been that upset? I don't recall ever being upset. I mean, it looks like I was, but I wasn't. He tore his hair out and sat down utterly shocked. He was devastated. I mean, I've been upset, but I, I can't imagine the depth of the anguish that Ezra was feeling at what he had found. And so he calls all of the nation together to Jerusalem. We, we need to talk. He shares with them the law. He called them all to Jerusalem. There's still no walls there, just the temple. And in Ezra chapter 10, within three days, all the people of Judah and Benjamin had gathered in Jerusalem. This took place on December 19th. And all the people were sitting in the square before the temple of God. I thought this was funny, so I put it in here. They were trembling, both because of the seriousness of the matter because it was raining. It's <laughs> just funny that they put that in there. I don't know why they, why they included that, but... They were cold. They were trembling because they were afraid, and it was a bit chilly that day. And I, had, I don't know why I didn't know this. But Ezra and the people, when he taught them the law, they said, whoa, we have done wrong. We need to divorce our wives and start over. He called all of the men together that had married wives of the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hittites, the Jebusites, Amorites, the Moabites, Egyptians, and the Amorites, and they had a mass divorce. If you read 
Nehemiah chapter 10, and I'm not going to read this, it lists each individual who had married one of the Canaanites, Jebusites, Perizzites, Hittites, Amorites, and such. It lists them all. It's right there for in infamy. And that's how the book of Ezra ends, with this catalog of all of these guys who had married uh, foreign women, which we're not talking about interracial marriage, we're talking about inter, you know, interfaith marriage at this point. I just want to be clear on that. We are now at the end of the book of Ezra. I tried to sprint through it. It took me a little bit more time than I thought. Nehemiah. 445 B.C. Oh. My, my daughter and her Snapchats. Nehemiah chapter 1. It's in 445 B.C. Nehemiah was, we talked about this earlier. I wrote this down afterward. Nehemiah was the first blogger. He just kind of wrote it down. This is what happened to me. It's, it's totally different writing style than anything else I've ever read in the Bible. He just kind of blogged about who he was and what was going on in his life. It was, it's an interesting read, and it's a quick read. It's not like uh, an intense read where you're like, oh man, when's this going to be done? You get through the book of Nehemiah in no time at all. It's, just, it's a really interesting read the way he, he writes. The temple's been rebuilt, but the walls of the city lie in ruin. This was 13 years after Ezra. Now we're coming to the book of Nehemiah. 13 years later, Nehemiah receives a visitor. This, these are the memoirs of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In late autumn, in the month of Kisle, in the tw uh, this is like November, Kislev, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign, I was at the fortress of Susa. Hanani, one of my brothers, and this is an actual brother. In uh, chapter 7, verse 2, it calls him out as his brother. So this Nehemiah's brother, Hanani. Come to visit with some other men who had just arrived from Judah. I asked them about the Jews who had returned from their captivity and how things were going in Jerusalem. They said to me, things are not going well for those who returned to the province of Judah. They are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem has been torn down and the gates have been destroyed by fire. When I heard this, I sat down and wept. In fact, for days I mourned, fasted and prayed to the God of heaven. I thought it was interesting when I started reading this that, that the city is in trouble and disgrace. Um, this was a far different time than what we know now, obviously. I, I mentioned earlier that it was like a, a big game of risk. Everyone was out to conquer the world. Uh, for real, that's, that's really what they were doing. Uh, the world population, you can, look, you can Google this if you want. The world population, estimated world population of 500 B.C., was? Four million people. A little bit more than four million. hundred million. A hundred million people lived in the whole world. A hundred million. That is, California has 40 million. Texas has 30 million. Florida has 
20 million. Illinois has 12, so that's 100 and, 104, and Florida has 22. So 104 million between those four states. That's the entire population of the entire world at this time. So when we talked about 50,000 people earlier, that's a lot of people. When you have 100 million spread out throughout the entire world. We have, what, 8 billion now? Is that right? Almost, yeah. I think I heard that we flipped to 8 billion like a couple weeks ago. 8 billion in the world. We're talking 100 million. That's a drop in the bucket to how many people are in the world now. And we, I think I read my Bible with the context of today's... 8 billion. Yeah, 8 billion. It was a sparsely populated world, really. At the time of Jesus, it was estimated there's 150 million people in the world. So 100 million people, not a whole lot of people. And they're attacking each other. So walls were important at that time. It gave protection, and it provided identity. Walls were essential. Uh, we don't have walls today. But it wasn't all that long ago we had walls. Uh, when, when, the, when the nation's first constructed, you ever heard of forts? Mm -hmm. They built forts. Why? For protection. They built forts up to keep, keep bad people out and, and, and relegate who was in. It was for protection. City walls up until uh, almost modern, well, I don't know exactly when. I read this. I can't remember exactly what year it was. But... Not all that long ago, city walls were important. And when I say walls, I'm not talking about, about the wall between your living room and your bedroom. These walls would be many feet thick, 60 feet, 30 feet, uh, 18 feet. You could walk on the walls. They would be 30 feet high. We're talking walls of a city that are, are massive. And for Jerusalem to be surrounded by just rubble, the walls had been decimated. They had no identity, and they had no safety. I have a, a picture here. Uh, I just kind of said all this stuff. Uh, I'm going to read the, the yellow part. Beyond their defensive utility, many walls also had important symbolic functions representing the status and independence of the communities they embraced. Uh, I found some pictures of some old walls that have been found and preserved. And when you see the walls, you see that they're not just simple walls, like you and I think of walls. These are massive constructions. And here's a wall of rubble. Shows probably a lot of what the city of Jerusalem might have looked like uh, at the time of Nehemiah. And when Nehemiah heard about this, his heart was touched. They had a temple, but no safety, no dignity. The city was in shambles, and they needed walls. And here he was in the safety of uh, his present job. In his present job, he was a cupbearer for the king. So Nehemiah, we don't get a whole big backstory about Nehemiah. But he was the king's cupbearer, and so what he would do was he would he's the food taster for the king. Make he, sure there's no poison in it. He would go through Nehemiah. So he had access to the king, he was with the king all the time. 
lived in the palace, had a very cushy job, very cushy life. Government job, didn't really have to do much. Check the food. Hang out with the king and the queen. Pretty nice gig for somebody. And I don't know how long he'd been doing it, but he had a pretty good life. And here he was in this good life when his brother told him that the walls of the city had been torn down. And I don't know what, what it is about... Um, the Jews, that there's something about them that draws them back to Jerusalem. I don't know. I'm not a Jew. I don't know. It's like there's something inside of them that draws them to that place. I'm going I'm to back up to the captivity real quick. When Nebuchadnezzar came and destroyed everything and took the best of the people, the rest of the people scattered. They scattered, they dispersed. It's called the Great Dispersion. They dispersed all throughout the world. In Acts chapter 2, there's some men gathered in an upper room, and, and Jesus had just ascended. He said, wait for my spirit. The spirits poured out in Acts chapter 2. They all speak with tongues, and they fill with the Holy Ghost. And there were in that city men from all over, everywhere, all over the world. And they heard them speak in their own tongues. Why were these men there? They were Jews who had come back to Jerusalem for Passover. They made that pilgrimage. Back. There's something that drew them and draws that, that segment of, of the population back to Jerusalem, even today. I don't understand it, but, but, but there's something that's inside of them that draws them. And, and Nehemiah, when he heard this, he was troubled. There's a temple there, but there, is, there, there are no walls there. I told Avery when I was studying for this Monday night, I got to this point in my study, and I felt the presence of God move into my little office, and I just begin to pace. Tears, tears just flowing. Uh, if you ever see me crying at church, it's not because I'm sad. I don't know what it is. When I feel the Spirit of God move on me, man, we're just saying, oh. I know they make fun of Brother Josh. I have that same thing. I don't mean to cry, but it just... And I'm walking around, what do I have? A box of Kleenex, I think. Just God was just dealing with me when, we, when I started looking into this about Nehemiah. And I wondered this, and I, I asked Avery this question when we were sitting here earlier. Why, why did the temple get built before the walls? What was, what, why? What good is a temple without walls? And, and we don't know the answer to that. We, we couldn't come up, but maybe you'd have an answer. But how many of you have ever in your life been to church, gone to a church service, been moved on and blessed and empowered, and walked out of that service back into your life that had no walls in it? No boundaries, no protection. No real identity. Don't raise your hand, but I'll raise my hand for some of you along with myself. We have to have walls in our life. Have to. If we don't have walls, there's really no benefit in the relationship you just walked away from, from that altar. If you walk back out, it, it's not going to stick. It's not going to make a difference. 
Because you have to have the walls and the protection of the presence of God in your life to keep that identity going. You have rubble in your life today. You need to rebuild it. I had a dream. This has been five or six years ago. I have dreams all the time and can't remember them the next morning. Anybody like that? But, well, what did I just dream? The more you get close to it, the further away. I wish I could remember that. I'll never forget this dream. I was in my house. And you know how dreams are. It wasn't my house, but it was my house. <laughs> and this evil-looking thing had walked through my front door. And I went to the front door of my house, and, and my house was like one of those... Uh, uh, Great southern plantations, you know, with the big steps going down, leading out to the yard, the pillars. And I opened the door, and, and, and there was a, another spirit on the steps, just this evil-looking thing. And out in my yard, there were three of them. They had, a, like, a fire pit and a tent. And I was scared in this dream. I, I will never forget this dream. And all throughout my yard, there were these evil spirits with fire pits standing around the fire pits, just looking at me. And I said, get out of my yard. And they just looked at me. I said, get out of my yard. And I went down and no, nothing would move until I started kicking the fire pits. And I just tore down the tent. And I started pushing these things out of my yard. And I woke up and I was speaking in tongues. That's happened twice in my life. I'll never forget it. And I woke up with that, get out of my yard. There are things we just cannot have in the yard. We have to have walls that surround us. We have to. Avery, share a thought, because I know you have one. When we see walls in Scripture, sometimes it's not about not having walls at all, but it's not having the right walls either. We see with the nation of Babylon, they were known for their gaudy wall. King Nebuchadnezzar, he built the most amazing looking walls that you'd ever see, but we find out that the way that the Persian Empire came and conquered him was through the walls. Uh, what they did is they dried up the Euphrates River, which ran underneath the wall, and they went underneath the wall, and that eventually led to Persia completely conquering Babylon. So they had walls. They had beautiful looking walls, but in reality, the enemy was able to get in through those walls to find the hole and eventually take complete control. Sometimes we may have walls, we may have boundaries, but there's holes in those boundaries that'll let the enemy get in. And once they get in, it'll completely wreck us. So, Brother Paul, like, we, like you were saying, we need walls, but at the same time, we also need to evaluate those walls and see where we need to refortify spiritually. You have to have. Have to have. And the uh, Babylonian walls was one of the wonders of the world at the time, like yep. people were just amazed by it, but, you know, God establishes kingdoms and, you know, takes away kingdoms, and so. The walls were vanity, really. Yeah. And, uh, we need to surround ourselves with some things that are not, <laughs> I don't know, they're very biblical, not vanity, not false, uh, you know what your life. You know what your walls are like in your life. You know, 
You know. You know what comes through your TV, through your computer, through your friends, through your, your relationships. You know what they bring into your life. And if you don't have walls, that you're going to have chaos and you will never be able to, to see God work as you want him to work. I think he'll still move on you, but you're not going to be a dynamic person. Can you survive without walls? God comes back on Sunday, I guess. Maybe. And, I don't know. And Nehemiah recognized this. That's the whole reason why I feel like he was dismayed and distraught at the fact that Jerusalem didn't have walls. Because um, he was basically recognizing that any device of the enemy, any device that these surrounding wicked nations would want to even possibly throw at Jerusalem, throw at God's people. They would have no defense for it. They would have absolutely no way of countering this. I mean, they might have a little bit of manpower, but in reality, they can't hold that up very long if their city isn't fortified. So, Nehemiah recognizes that something needs to happen. And Brother Paul, we were kind of talking about this before. I may be jumping ahead a little bit, but... I'm, I'm going to try to stop here, so... Sure. So, why is it just now hitting Nehemiah? Nehemiah didn't... Um, Nehemiah really, at least it doesn't record in the book, that he didn't really give any thought that Nehemiah, that the walls of Jerusalem were dismayed before his brother came and told Here's him. Here's what I wrote down. Go ahead. The walls have been broken down for 160 years, and it didn't bother Nehemiah until it did. Right. So All of a sudden, it does. Yeah, and that kind of got me thinking. Sometimes We hate to hear bad news. I hate hearing bad news. It wrecks my day sometimes, but I wonder... If God will let us receive bad news so that it will wake us up to do something about it. Nehemiah, we see, is a man of prayer. And when we see in, um, we see right here actually on the slide that when Nehemiah hears this bad news, he immediately turns to prayer. He's praying, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of unfailing love with those who love him and obey his commands. Listen to my prayer. I love how Nehemiah goes straight to the Word of God, starting his prayer. I love to pray the Word of God. And I always think about Jesus in the garden. When the enemy is coming to Jesus, and not in the garden, yet probably in the garden, but when he's in the wilderness fasting, Jesus could have sent a legion of angels to defeat Satan and never bother him again. But all he does is say, as it is written, all he does is quote the Word, of God. And when you stand on the word of God, especially in prayer, it catches God's attention. So Nehemiah approaches God, standing on his word, and he says, Look down and see me praying night and day for your people, Israel. I confess that we have sinned against you. Yes, even my own family and I have sinned. We have sinned terribly by not obeying the commands, decrees, regulations that you have gave us through your servant Moses. But remember what you told your servant Moses. If you are unfaithful to me, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands and live by them, then even if you are exiled to the ends of the earth, I will bring you back to the place that I have chosen for my name to be honored. So, Nehemiah approaches God with this attitude of, kind of like unlike Nebuchadnezzar, who was an arrogant king and it ended up leading to God having to humble him, Nehemiah approaches God with this attitude of, God, you don't owe me, Israel, my people, my fathers, one thing. You made a covenant with us, you were faithful to us, but we were unfaithful to you, and it led us into this mess. We are in our own mess, but would you please remember the word that you spoke to your servant Moses? 
if we would turn back to you, if we would get our hearts right and we would live by your commands, then even if we're exiled, you'll bring us back to the place that you have chosen for us. So Nehemiah is approaching God with this humility. He's approaching God with this humble heart. And I believe it's prayers like that that catch God's attention. If you find yourself in a situation where you need to refortify your walls, approach God with humility. Approach him with the attitude that you need him. The attitude that says, God, you don't owe me anything, but I need you. My people need you. My church needs you. My family needs you. So, Have you ever prayed for something? Anybody? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I've prayed for things, and then I have prayed for things. There's a difference. Nehemiah, when it hit his heart, he didn't just go, God, we got an issue over there. You need to do something. So what is God's job here? This is a serious question. What's God's job? Take care of everything for us? He's never worked that way. God always used people to accomplish his purpose. So for Nehemiah to go, hey, we got an issue over there. Praying night and day. He, something about this, never bothered him before, bothers him now. And have you ever felt a, a burden like that? Or something's been birthed in you that you cannot get away from. My, 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 I don't know if you guys know this or not, but I have a grandson. It's crazy. Um, when my daughter-in-law was, became pregnant, she changed a lot of things in her life. She didn't have Jimmy John's for nine months. <laughs> had it three times since she had the baby. She had Jimmy John. She changed everything. There was something about what was birthed in her <laughs> that changed everything. Nothing else mattered but what was birthed in me. And if we could get that kind of passion that, that Nehemiah had, where it's like, it didn't bother me before, but now all of a sudden, I can't function normally anymore. The things that were important to me aren't important to me anymore. This is the only thing that's important to me. God used that. Nehemiah was a cupbearer. He was not a, a, a construction foreman. He wasn't a preacher, a priest, a warrior, a project manager. He, he'd never done any of that stuff. Where he was a cupbearer for the king. How is this guy going to go? He even... He even concludes, I'll just show you this because I, I've already closed my, I'm, I'm done. But I was the king's cupbearer. He says, I was just the king's cupbearer. What am I going to do? But that passion could not be ignored. And he had to do something about it. You have a, a guy here who was uniquely equipped, and I'm going to, I'm just going to tell you what happens in, in Nehemiah 2 and 3, because Avery's going to pick up on in 4. So in chapter 2, he goes and starts 
surveying the city. And he goes with the blessing of the king. And in chapter 3, he assigns people sections. He says, you, your table, you're going to build that part. You're going to build this part. You're going to build this part. You're going to build that. All the way around, he assigned people to build the temple. Or the temple, the walls. You were responsible for your section. He was, he was not the, the carpenter himself. He was not the guy doing the work. But he had sat for years in the king's palace and saw how the king was able to delegate and get work done. And this guy was a master delegator. And in 52 days, 52 days, they rebuilt the wall with this guy just using the skills he did have because of the burden that drove him to do it. Um, I think a lot of times we look at what we don't have instead of what we do have and say, well, I can't do that because I don't have this. Like Moses did. Moses grew up in the palace for 40 years. 40 years he knew the inner workings of Pharaoh's palace. Then he spent the next 40 years wandering around in the desert with the sheep. And then when God calls him and says, hey, I want you to go deliver my people, he's like, he said, me? Why me? Who else has the gift and the ability and the experience to do this like this guy? And he looks at what he does and he says, well, I can't speak. I didn't ask you if you could speak. I, I, I asked you what was in your hand. And then he supplemented what he couldn't do with, with, with his brother. He, he'll, bring, he'll fill in the holes for you. But we just have to do something. We 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 have to do something. All of us need to do something. We need to be uncomfortable. We need to find what, what it is that, that, it, that my purpose is. I, I, I'm going to make two quick points. David was a shepherd. At an age of about 15, probably, he was anointed to be king. He did not become the king at age 15. He went back out to the, to the field as, as he was uh, assigned to do, I guess. That was his job, was to watch the sheep. He had a king's anointing, but he was watching sheep. While he's watching sheep, he's protecting the sheep. And he's practicing with his slingshot. And he's playing his harp. And writing songs. The Lord is my shepherd. Whatever. However it goes. I don't know. <laughs> He's playing his harp and singing his songs and, and playing with his slingshot and, and shooting it at the, the wolves and the bears. And then when the door opens, here he comes, walking through with a kid, still, still a young man. The door opened to the palace. Because he was so good with his, his music, they looked for a musician to calm the king when the king was upset, so they found this guy who could play the harp. So here's David, king's anointing, still a shepherd, but he could play his harp a little bit, so he goes to the palace, and he learns all about the palace. He's not the king. He's still a shepherd. Then the next time he appears, here's a, here's a giant facing the army. I always wondered as a kid, why, did, why would Saul allow this kid to go fight the giant? Well, he had a relationship with this kid. Because he'd seen him play the harp. And he knew there was something special about him. When David went out there, I, I've always heard Sunday school teachers and preachers say, God directed that stone. I don't believe that for a second. He'd been practicing that skill out in the field for a long time. And he was good at it. And those things that he was good at made way for his 
his calling. And Avery and I were talking right before about doors will open for you when, when it's time. I think a lot of us sit there and we wait for, we're waiting for the door to open and we're not doing anything while we're waiting for the door to open. <laughs> that's, that's not how it works. It probably won't open. We need to be busy doing what we are good at doing, honing the skills and the unique abilities God has given us and the unique callings God has placed on our lives. And some of you are thinking, well, I'm too old. No, you're not. You're not too old, Sister Rose. God still uses older saints. I'm glad. I mean, I'm doing things I've never done before. I went to Westminster Village this week and, and spoke to 35 people older than me. And it was a great experience for, for me. I don't know about them, but it was a great experience for me to be able to, to, to do something I was not comfortable doing, but I felt God was in it. And I think there are doors that are, that are open to us if we'll look around and... and and apply ourselves where we're at today. Nehemiah did what he knew was right and what God was leading him to do because God does not do that stuff for us. He doesn't. God uses us. He doesn't need us, but he uses us. He uses us. What great thing is God wanting to do in your life? I'll say this, and then I'll shut up. Maybe, maybe the walls need to be examined in our life. Maybe your walls need to be put back in place. But you have to do it. Nehemiah prayed a prayer. And Nehemiah was changed by the prayer. I've heard this saying, God changes things. Or prayer changes things. I'm sorry, prayer changes things. That's really not in the Bible anywhere. The only, the only thing we could find was James 5.16, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. What God really changes is you. When I'm praying, God, help my wife to be a better wife. <laughs> help my kids to be better kids. What I need to be praying is, God, help me to be a better husband. Help me to be a better father. Help me to be a better employee. It's not my boss's problem. It's probably me. And God changes us in order for us to change the environment around us. Any final thoughts? We have one minute. Thank you, Jesus, for your word, for speaking to us tonight. I pray that we will, we will take your word, we will break it open, we will continue to, to get understanding and knowledge as you will allow it into our lives, and that this group here today will make a difference in somebody's life this week. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.